Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. When we started recording the Play On Podcast series, The Winter's Tale, almost exactly a year ago, one of my priorities was to interview Elijah Alexander, the actor who plays Leontes, as part of the bonus content for the series. But life moves fast. Both of us got busy with other things, and that interview became one of those ephemeral things that we chase after that just never materializes. <laughs> but now, now production is winding down for the remainder of this year, and I finally had the time to reach out to a very busy actor who had the time to talk to me. He's also one of my oldest and closest friends, and it's a real joy to finally get to sit down and talk with Elijah Alexander about the winter's tale, the character of Leontes, someone he knows very well, and the duality of human beings that is so deeply explored in this play and in so much of art. I wanted to talk to Elijah about being an artist, about playing these roles, this role in particular. And I'm so glad that we were able, able to finally make it happen. Elijah, welcome to the bonus series for the Play On podcast series of The Winter's Tale. Thank you, Michael. Thrilled and honored to be a part of this. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, well, and and true to true to fashion, as as in The Winter's Tale, you know, between the the first sort of part um, of those major events that happen in the play and the second half. Uh, 16 years go by. That's right. <laughs> so qu quite, a, quite. I mean, and that play itself deals with time in, in, in many ways standing still. And so it's maybe quite appropriate that uh, so much time has passed since we've been able to, to revisit this. I'm happy to do it and uh, happy to be here. That's really a, a great insight. And I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, talking to you, in this way, and, and with this play as sort of a reference point, because, you know, human beings, I think it is human nature. I look at I look at you, I see this incredible career you have uh, as an actor, the great roles you've gotten to play, traveling all over the country in the regional theater. And I mean, at the best, the most the most acclaimed theaters in the country, uh, it's it, it, it feels to me so um but, you know, it's what we as actors strive for is that kind of a life. You're living it and you have this other perspective of seeing other lives. And it just kind of goes to show, I think, that, you know, Leontes, Polixenes, right? Uh, they're emblematic of people who uh, just exist and don't really have a clear grasp of their own uh blessings right mm, mm. oh uh, very yeah very true and, can you, and yeah no no you first no i mean that it, it, it it's it's so true you know we we don't always uh understand in the moment the impact we're having on another person that we're in relationship with uh other people meaning family community um, until we take a step back and well, until so oftentimes until we lose that relationship or friendship or, um, connection. Um, and also, you know, friends 
romantic partners, community members reflect um, to us, you know, our, our true natures, if, if we are vulnerable enough to, to be able to express that. Um, and so everyone we meet is really a reflection of the best in us and the worst in us. And, and, and so, yeah, we can track and, you know, relationship with career, if you, for lack of a better word, is also uh, a, a, a growing, evolving, um, and very um, instrumental key relationship. And I mean, and, or our relationship, our relationship to our life's work. Okay. So. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I've, uh, you know, you want one thing when you become an actor and you go to grad school and you devote your life, you become a devotee to, <laughs> to that kind of life. Um, and then over time it changes. And I think the pandemic did that for a lot of people. This wasn't your first encounter with the character of Leontes. No, no. So I, it's interesting. This was one of the characters that I've been um, most afraid of. And uh, usually, I, you know, I would live my life based on the, the premise that what, what scares me is, is what I need to get into, right? What I need to confront and embrace. Um, but, you know, I've been doing, working with Shakespeare, Shakespeare's plays and his, his work for 28 years. Uh, you know, I've done, I think, I was working this out with a with David the other day, and he asked me how many plays have you done. I I think I've it's like twenty two of of Shakespeare's plays that I've been. David and David, David Denman David Denman or the actor David Denman yeah yeah um you know because he's a he is a, a Shakespeare aficionado he has a great great love for Shakespeare so we share that um, he's also you know he doesn't have as many opportunities to go and do that because he, he can't take the time to go. But he's, he's, he's seen more theater and more Shakespeare than anyone I've ever met. Hmm. Um, but we were going over how many plays we've done. And I think it, for me, it was something, it's something like 21, 22. And some of those plays I've done twice, but Leontes has always been uh, kind of like a unicorn, something that I, I was never really interested in in pursuing or portraying. Um, the journey he takes is very difficult for uh, an audience to get behind. Mm -hmm. And um, it's great that I was able to do it with you guys after I had done uh, done a full production. So I did in um, 2017, 2018. I went, uh, Rob Melrose, who we went to school with, a classmate of ours from, from Yale uh, in the directing program. He became the artistic director in the last few years of the Alley Theater in Houston. And he was interested in having me as a part of the company. So he brought me on to do The Winter's Tale into a community that is not, let's just say they're not, uh, uh, the Alley is not, um, hasn't done a lot of Shakespeare and, and their audience. I mean, I can't, I actually can't remember the last time they did a, a Shakespeare play before we came to do the winter's tale. It was Rob's Rob also has a deep 
love and respect for Shakespeare and his, and his work. And so he wanted, he, he wanted to create uh, that love in his community there. And it, it, the winter's tale was a tough one to, to do, to, to, to sort of start with. Yeah. He wanted to follow it up with the merchant of Venice, um, which obviously didn't happen the next season. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was, it was a really tough and um, challenging journey. Uh, eventually, you know, you go all in as we do when we take on a role. And I explored, really tried to explore the the root cause of all of that um, reactivity and sense of jealousy and projection of fear that's coming from that character. And so I got into the psychology of the aunties. I explored the this nature of um, you know, when I've never been married myself, I don't have a family, but that very much um, came to bear in terms of his psychology. He he had been married uh, to Hermione for quite some time. They were going through some marital um, challenges, as every relationship, and in, in, in particular marriages do. They were also expecting their second child. And so I really sort of tried to key into the, the the reasoning behind all of that fearful projection and all of that obsessive um, uh, paranoia and jealousy that he was exhibiting and portraying and, and the root cause of it all. And so I learned a great deal. I learned a great deal. And it, it really gave me a lot to work with when I came back to it a second time. And so that was, it was really vital, that work. One of the things that you and I talked about when you were uh, approaching this this role, when we talked about you doing it, was a sort of like the 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 change that can happen psychologically in almost an instant mm-hmm. in a person. Can you can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners? Just the, what you learned about psychology. And mm-hmm. how something like this really can, it's not far-fetched that somebody who had been behaving in a certain way and uh, lived a certain life suddenly just throws it all away, essentially, uh, changes on a dime. There's one phenomenon I'm trying to remember what it's called, but when when a man is dealing with the a child... There's a there's a um, a fear of loss and separation of his wife, her devotion, her time and energy, because obviously the child becomes first priority, and so it, it's you know I I have to use my imagination in this because I don't have the experience, but I get the feeling that based on what I'm reading, right, the source material and what I'm imagining that you know when a man and wife when a man and woman have been married for many decades or many years and they've devoted their lives to raising a family he's also you know committed to uh, running a kingdom right to um so he's got he's pulled in many different directions and hermione as well i mean she's also the queen of this kingdom and raising a family and um He's also, his best friend, Polixenes, has 
been away for quite some time and now has been in his presence for nine months. Um, and the feeling of, there's a feeling of loss of, he's also ready to leave. Um, so Leontes has, has become accustomed to having his, his loved ones around him amidst great change. And then he's got the double fear of losing his wife, her time and attention with the coming of their second child and losing his best friend. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, this fear, this fear of loss that creates um, basically an ang anxious, nervous breakdown. And I, I looked it up while, while, yeah. while oh, great. I can just know I'm probably mispronouncing it. Kuvadi or Kuvad syndrome. They call it the male counterpart. This is just, you know, looking it up online through oh, that's Pub, great, PubMed, but the male counterpart to pregnancy, it's a common, uh, it says here, it's a common but poorly understood phenomenon whereby the expectant father experiences somatic symptoms during the pregnancy for which there is no recognized psychological basis that in these, these symptoms include a decreased appetite and headache or all these actual physical symptoms, but can also produce anxiety and rivalry and ambivalence um, and, and fear, fear. Yes, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, um, you know, as a woman, you know, that they, they um, deal with, I mean, it's a very serious thing. Postpartum depression, right? It right. is very, very serious thing. And, Many women have suffered through that after giving birth, in particular their first time. So there also could be the the fear of that happening again, right? So to to the woman he loves most in the world, uh, his wife Hermione. So I think all of that together contributed to this complete mental collapse. And yeah, it's I mean. That's why it's so amazing to get into Shakespeare's works because he really investigated all of this. The, the, the conditions, the human condition and, and human psychology. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And that was most exciting for me to explore because you have to have, you have to have a, a springboard, right? You can't just go into these things because Shakespeare, he writes in, I mean, you, you've got to fill in, fill in those small transitions yourself with your own mm -hmm. imagination mm -hmm. because that break in particular happens so quickly that it's shocking for everyone. Most importantly, the audience, they're like, what just happened? You need to, you need to have your own backstory. You need to create history. Um, not only of that character, you know, his Leontes childhood. So I got to go back and, you know, I know, I know you share this as an artist, you know, in, in grad school, we would often go back and journal. And when we took on a character and started to, to get, get into exploring that character, you in particular, I think, which was really inspiring, um, kept, you know, meticulous notes and journal journals based on the history of your character and it, it adds depth and um, dimension and complexity and it has to be done it's a, ne a necessity because Shakespeare doesn't do it he yeah. creates these big broad strokes these big 
broad movements. It's almost like opera. You know, you, you, he gives you the arias, but you've got to fill in all of those notes that are missing because they, because once you're sit out there singing that aria, the audience has to get all of that backstory. So you have to live it, you, you know, and when you have a long run, like if you were doing, how long did you do Leontes at the alley? How many? Uh, it was probably a three and a half a month, four week run. Yeah. So a lot, it, you know, you're doing, when you're doing these, these uh, traditional American regional theater runs, you're doing 36 to 40 performances. Right. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you've done that work, if you've created the life around the text, it gives you something to fuel those, those times when you feel like you just don't have, have it in you. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's once, yeah, as a, as a craftsperson, which is, you know, what we are, you, you have to, and especially when you're dealing with longer runs, as you also have experience with at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, the Utah Shakespeare Festival, which is where I just came from, mm -hmm. um, where we did, you know, it's a, it was an extended run, long run. Um, you have to build it in that baseline. Um, and and it, it's it's a necessity, as you know, you understand this, because the work will only deepen and reach heights um, in as much as you've laid the laid the groundwork and done that the the historical personal investigation. So it can only go as far as as the the work you've uh, the 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 research and the, and the homework that you've done. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, you know, I do, I do remember this uh, in grad school, having this conversation, you know, our teacher, Earl Gister, the one thing that he said is you can't let your own invention take over the story of the play, right? The play, you have to stay within the, the given circumstances and not write your own play. Certainly. That takes you away from the, intentions of the playwright we had that, certainly it was uh we yeah. were working on Chekhov at the time and i went yeah. way off on tangents in my yeah. creation of you know justification for why this character did that or the other thing and and that i remember that being such a valuable lesson like stay within the world that was created by the yeah. by the playwright that's, want... that's such a great that's such a great point and that's why theater is a collaborative art because look, Shakespeare on the page doesn't do it. Right. Shakespeare is meant to be in the hands of an actor and uh, fulfilling a performance contract with community. So it's meant to be expressed, performed in public. And, and the audience also has a, a very demanding responsibility as well. And I can get into that if we have time later, but, but, most definitely there's a context you you use the play as a as a blueprint and within that world though there is great great freedom and that's where a collaborative artist um can become most free but yes you have to stay within the confines and the context of telling the telling of that story but it's interesting that throughout my career and not only in my professional life but in my personal life um, I've discovered 
the excitement of feeling free within relationship, feeling free with another person. You know, we're here, we're here to bear the beams of love. We're here as human beings to be in relationship, not to, you know, although spirituality is a, a major component of that, we're not meant to be isolated from society, go live on a mountain and read, you know, read plays or do whatever mm -hmm. we're going to do on our own. We're meant to be in communion. We're meant to be in relationship. And in the same way that we can find freedom as artists within the framework of a play, we can feel free within relationship. And it's interesting, The Winter's Tale deals with both of those things, you know, on a, on an, a, a superficial level or a basic level. Yes, I have to develop the character of Leontes given with the given circumstances as they are. I can't create some other uh, um, uh, reality, you know, other than what's given to me, laid down by the playwright, right? But within that framework, I can I can feel I can um, explore a great deal, you know, and so I think. What you're referring to was a great, um, uh, you know, and part of uh, educate being educated as to what's, you know, like anything else, form and concept are needed to create the formless, right? I mean, I'm listening to a lot of Ram Das these days, and he talks so much about, you know, dealing with form and concept, right, and definition and identification. Right. But within those things, one, if you don't become attached to them, you can feel free. And I think it's the same with doing a play. It's the same with doing being in relationship. You know, I'm I play the role of husband. I'm playing the role of king. You're playing the role of wife. You're playing the role of queen within that relationship. There's a there is a particular form. Right. That we the, and, and roles that we identify with. But if we don't become attached to those things, if the mind doesn't cling to them, we can actually feel quite free within that to be our true selves. Do you find that the roles that you encounter are roles that come to you or that you, through some sort of intention, have dug up for yourself? Does that make sense? Yes. It's a great question. I. I firmly believe now, after doing this for so long, uh, um, that roles present themselves and projects present themselves to, to teach us something. And mm -hmm. like everyone we meet becomes our teacher, makes us a better teacher, becomes our student, makes us a better student. Every play uh, has taught me something, every role. And it's, uh, it's amazing because especially when we're young actors, we, we want to we play certain roles, right? We want to take on certain challenges. We all want to play Hamlet. I know you, you, you were fortunate enough to do it. It's, it's so, so funny because for 30 years of my career, I've wanted to play Hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and it was part of my desire. It, it was what I wanted, not what I needed. But at every turn, you know, I even, you know, there were two two productions of Hamlet that I, I had worked on um, um, a, a conceit uh, 
of a with a particular perspective on the play and i'd worked on it and i sold it to two theaters that wanted to do it and then life happened 2008 the financial collapse happened right. this one particular theater couldn't do hamlet you know they couldn't do that kind of a play for their audience they had to do you know um greece <laughs> or something <laughs> um but no the what we want isn't always what we need and isn't isn't um, what is going to uh, move us forward in our spiritual progression and our spiritual evolution. So it's all about that. And I, I thank God and I thank the universe and I, that my trajectory has been what it, what it has. I, if I would have played Hamlet right out of grad school, things might've been different. I'd been wanting to play that role for so long that when Richard III came up, out of the blue, they approached me from the Utah Shakespeare Festival in 2011 and said, hey, we want you to play Richard III. And it's a play I'd never looked at. I'd mm. never studied. At that point, I was still obsessed with playing Hamlet, right? Mm -hmm. So then I, I get into Richard III and I, and I think, oh my Lord, there's everything that mm -hmm. Hamlet has in Richard III and then some. Here's mm -hmm. a journey that is like far reaching, you know, runs the spectrum. And so I embraced it and it, it um, was one of the highlights of my, not only my career, my life, um, just in terms of developing stamina and, you know, um, character development and the, the journey that, that, that man takes. So, and out of the blue, it was a me messaging that came to me. Someone put it in my lap and I embraced it. Leontes was, was the same. Um, and as a matter of fact, I've just come from playing Time in of Athens at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, never on my radar, mm -hmm. uh, presented itself at a time when I was finishing up shooting season four of The Chosen, a TV show that I work on, um, which has had amazing global impact. We have, I mean, 700 million viewers worldwide. It's been translated into 50 languages. I just actually came from Chosen Khan, which is the first of, the, <laughs> of, that, of that sort that the show has done. And it was overwhelmingly beautiful to have thousands of people there in person telling me personally how the TV show has changed, literally transformed their lives. That's a really interesting uh, character that you play, right? Tell us who it is. Yeah. Uh, so on the chosen, I play um, uh, Cohortus Urbani, which is an actual title um, in the Roman Roman um, military. Uh, Atticus Aemilius Pulcher, who's a, he's basically a, a Roman spy, and the chosen is a, a biblical drama that that tracks the the life and times of Jesus and his disciples. So the chosen refers to those he chose to right. follow him. Join Play On Premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. The Chosen is the the uh, a huge hit with Christians, right? Uh, yeah. uh, evangelical Christians. Correct. Yeah. So, well, 
even with, but I mean, even like we were saying, even within Christianity, there are there are um, there are factions that have. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than fifty percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Issues with the way the way this story is being told. Mm. Um, but I have the most respect for Dallas Jenkins and the writers and the creators of the show because they've taken scripture and they've, you know, they're artists. Right. So, so they've given an artist's perspective on on a, a group of human beings, you know, one of one of whom has become, uh, you know, iconic and um, mythologized in in Jesus. a lot of Jesus, meaning Jesus Christ, right? And and also. Um, further distanced from everyone else in a way that is, uh, I think can be, um, lonely. Right. And, and so what this show, what these creators have done is, is, um, made Jesus more accessible to, to regular human beings, to all of us. Humanized, humanized Christ made, made him, somebody that we can relate to yeah. as just a person. Yes. That's, that's really treacherous water, right? Because yes. I mean, you look at the last temptation of Christ and what happened with Martin Scorsese and, and uh, uh, Willem Dafoe, when they basically tried to do that with a, the, the adaptation of that novel. Yeah. Have, have you felt any, have you received any uh, pushback from Christians or also just, curious to know for you uh, as a person of Jewish origin, how meeting this project has felt to you? Both those questions. Uh, this, this project has changed my life. So, so th- this began a, a transformative and spiritual change that has, that leaves me uh, where you see me today, but it began with um the pandemic coming into the Vale Valley, b- booking the, the chosen, starting to work with that group of people, uh, an amazing group of pe- loving group of people, faith-based show, as you said, Christian-based ba- show. Obviously, it's dealing with um, the New Testament and telling the stories of the Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then I became a high school teacher here in the Valley because our industry had been turned upside down and I started to work with young people. So I started to use my 30 years of experience in the business in a different way. 
Mm-hmm. And the the cast is an international cast. There, everyone is welcome. There's an environment of peace, love, understanding, acceptance. As we, I mean, it, and that and was the proselytizing. Most... Do people? Do you feel like on no. set there's any of that? Like, have you? Have you? Heard Not at you? all. Not at all. Just the opposite. There's everyone is welcome to bring, uh, you know, their true and authentic selves. N- n- there's never been. Uh, everyone has their own private beliefs, mm-hmm. and you see that in the work, which is the most amazing part of the show, b- because you see, look, the guy, Jonathan Rumi, who's an amazing actor and a beautiful human being. He plays Jesus Christ. He was born and raised a Catholic, mm-hmm. but we have many other cast members that are, we have Jews, Israeli Jews. Mm-hmm. We have a, a, a cast member who is now as a reservist, he's back in the IDF in Israel. Wow. On the, on the front lines. Wow. Um, I'm, actually, I'm not a hundred percent sure where he is, but I know that he's, he's uh, back in the IDF as, as you know, Israel calls up, all the reservists right. when something like this is happening. So Any Muslims in the cast that you know of? N- no, not that I know of, no Muslims, but um, Jews, secular, religious, uh, Israelis, Italians. Um, we have an Australian, um, people from Morocco. Um, I mean, it's international. It is across the, bo- the range in terms of religious orientation and ethnic orientation. And it is the most beautiful uh, combination of, and and look, me telling you about my experience is something you can witness by watching the show because you can see, you can see what everyone, that everyone brings their own beliefs well, I would uh, imagine that that ends that 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 lends an air of authenticity because at the time Jesus, there were no Christians, right? Right. Everybody right. was Jewish or or what we would call pagan today, I guess, or you know, some coming from their own belief system. That's right. Hearing the, the teachings of this this rabbi, a Jew. That's right. Who is a Jew? And uh, um, through the so through the course of this working on this show and working with young people and using, trying to create um, an artful way of living. You know, it, um, I've, I've, my relationship with Jesus Christ has changed and his messaging, messaging in particular, um, my relationship with God, my relationship with my own um, history and culture and traditions and belief systems have all expanded grown changed dramatically and it's made me a better human being a better artist and uh i'm deeply grateful for all of it so i want to talk about um what you're doing in teaching that also uh there's a christian component in in the teaching that you're doing in veil yes well okay so a year and a half ago i met Roger Grunewald, who created the Mitzvah Project. So the Mitzvah Project is a Holocaust-themed educational program of social justice. It deals it deals with asking really difficult questions um, that everyone is dealing with today, and it especially young people. Um, why do we demonize the other? Why do we uh, 
um, discriminate against someone else who, who is a different color, uh, of a different religion, a different race, a different socioeconomic background, uh, chooses to identify in a particular way, chooses to love uh, in a particular way. Why do we, we, you know, in, in, in parentheses, uh, um, demonize the other? Why, why are we separated? What causes that separation? And, and why do we allow it to dictate our choices? Right? So, and especially young people today are dealing with so many things that we, you and I, in our generation, never had to deal with. Right. Um, through the advent of uh, social media and and many other things that distance people from having true authentic human connection and being in society and being in communion, being in public, right? So I got involved in this project. It's a three three part project. It has a one man show component, then it has a lecture. And then a Q&A session. And I've been taking it since January, since Holocaust Remembrance Week of this year, 2023. I've been taking it all over the country. Uh, and it's just continuing to um, change me in terms of the direction of, that I want to take my life's work in. But during that time, I got involved with a, 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 a school here, Vail Christian High School, um, I met the head of the school and he said, hey, we want to be the, the ones, the school that launches this program in the Vail Valley, which was a bold and uh, um, beautiful gesture, right? Mm -hmm. So I launched it there during Holocaust Remembrance Week. And so we, 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 it was our inaugural production. And then from there, I took it. I've taken it all over the country. I just got back from Florida, a uh, uh, high school and a college in Florida. Wow. All of us live with the Holocaust and that very, it's a sort of a, what feels like a very recent past memory culturally. And it is, uh, especially in the scope of Jewish history. But what is the level of awareness among students today at large? You're, you're going out into sort of the general population. Is there as much awareness of the Holocaust as you would imagine there should be given how we've lived with it as Jews? One of the reasons that Roger created this program is that most students of high school age today in this country, in the United States of America, something like 38% don't even know what the Holocaust is, let alone wow. what happened. So, yeah, so, and, and they're not taught it in curriculum in this country, uh, even in world history classes. So it's negligible in terms of, of, of uh, what's being taught to our young people. And so is there any wonder that every other week we're having um, a, a school shooting uh, that in the Vale Valley, it's got the number one teenage suicide rate in the country that young people are killing themselves, killing each other. Um, uh, people are uh, disgruntled and feel not unheard, unseen, and they don't understand other people. Yeah. The, the, a sense of empathy is, has become, uh, you know, uh, there's been a, an assault on 
empathy and understanding and connection and social social socialization and so i think it begins with the way we're teaching our young people i mean i was just in florida doing working at a high school in jacksonville where just just three miles away six months ago i'm misquoting it i don't know if it's exactly six months but six months ago at a family dollar store, a 22-year-old young man went in to a family dollar store with an AR-15 and started killing black people. Right. And he had a apparently had a swastika on his, you know, engraved on his uh, rifle, on his gun, and he was, you know, it, committing a hate crime, killed yeah. many people because of the color of their skin, and then killed himself, I think. So I'm coming into a community where that's status quo that happens that's normal right it's been normalized in our country in every major city and some not so major cities in this country you have angry upset misunderstood uh uh mentally challenged young people who are taking that out on other people and so this is my part to help educate what does the word mitzvah mean? So mitzvah in the formalized sense means commandment in, in the Jewish tradition, but we've come to understand a mitzvah as a good deed, right? Right. As a good deed. And uh, it's interesting that he calls it the mitzvah project because it, it involves the mercy killing of two, of two innocent, pitiable, suffering souls. Hmm. Um, in, that, in a uh, concentration camp? In a concentration camp in Auschwitz. So, so, but it's, it, you know, it tells the story of two, two lives that inter, intersect or collide during the darkest days of the Holocaust, but opens it up to, to tell a much um, larger story, a much more universal story that everyone can relate to. And that's where the lecture comes in and the, the question and answer sessions come in. And those are actually the most important part of the program is engaging these young people creating a safe space where they can talk, have these really difficult conversations where they can talk about their own experience within these high schools, their experience of being bullied, their experience of being discriminated against, their experience of being feeling separate and alone and outcast and harassed. And, and, um, uh, and I've, you know, I actually in Jacksonville, I came, it was the most diverse population student body that I've been to thus far. And it was amazing. We had Muslims, we had uh, African-American, you know, black students, we had Jews, we had Christians, we had a Hispanic, a large Hispanic um, group. And yet this school was like being in a prison. They had mm. armed security guards roaming the halls. They had a police uh, escort out front. They had they had system of, of locks uh, on the door on every door every door in the high school. They had uh, they have panic buttons on the, the teachers the faculty have panic buttons on their ID cards hmm. um, that alert the the law enforcement if something you know goes awry in in the school. It's unbelievable. It was. It's it's mind blowing that that is normalized now in our in our country in our society, and again I'll just come back to it's all about educating the younger generations so they don't so they ha- 
understand there are other options. They don't and have to. Yeah. Overcoming fear and dealing with fear. 100%. 100%. The fear of death, the fear of the unknown, the fear of change. Yeah. Uh, that it's bringing it back to all the way back to the winter's tale in Leontes. Mm. It's like Leontes goes into the depths of a personal hell and lashes out and kills people. I mean, he kills his son. Yeah. Yeah. And then goes through this transformation, kills his wife. I mean, essentially he thinks, I mean, she's served. However, you want to interpret that miraculously or through through Paulina's ingenuity, uh, and this beautiful redemptive ending happens in the second half. Can we can we talk a little bit about that? What happens for Leontes and how that's so symbolic of the journey of of the human soul? All life is suffering. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find meaning in the suffering. And to thrive is to alleviate someone else's. Words that we say have power, right? The, the actions have even greater power. So who we are is what we say and what we do, right? Fear, when fear controls those two things, what we say and what we do, we are separated immediately and we increase our own suffering. So fear just perpetuates suffering. And what Leontes does, he says with his words, his words being powerful, abracadabra from the Aramaic is I create as I speak, right? That's the origin of that phrase. Words can create. We communicate for two different reasons, right? What, I'm, what we're doing this, this morning together is one of two things we're either trying to create connection or trying to create separation with with our speech with our dialogue with our dialectic right so early on in that play everything the the vitriol that's coming out of leontes mouth the horrible things he says are destructive and and come from his fear right and then the actions he takes i mean he threatens to to kill his own newborn baby but i mean he literally raises a sword and threatens to take the life if he's not obeyed he doesn't do it he hands it off um he hands it off to someone with with antigonus he hands it off to antigonus with instructions to take it out uh to a vast location and leave leave the baby there to to the to the elements out um to be exposed to the elements. So yes, which, and he which, is, which is a death sentence to an infant. Death sentence, hundred percent, hundred percent. So that's the action he takes based on fear. He, you know, because he doesn't believe the child is his own. He's overcome by his ego, by obsession, which is an element of his ego, and jealousy. All elements of personality, ego, uh, all dictated by fear. And he, you know, just becomes destructive with everything he says and everything he does. And there's, yes, there's an amazing redemption, this redemptive love. This, these, this play is about redemptive love. It's about forgiveness. It's about um, reclamation, right? 
because I feel like in the second part, he reclaims the person he is, his authentic personality, his authentic self, his, his true nature. However, we still have the loss of a 10-year-old boy, his 10-year-old son, who, who, who dies um, from grief at seeing his mother, um, what he thinks, his at seeing his mother die, uh, his lifeline, the, the mother, the divine mother. So um, he dies and he is not brought back. So we, we do, we're not left at the end with, it's not a fairy tale ending by any means. Right. And, and I think that's what makes it so um, human is that we can do what we can do. We can be responsible for our, our own evolution and transformation. But in the end, what we're accountable for and accountable to uh, is something we don't necessarily have control over. So, yeah, the, at the end, there's forgiveness. There's redemptive love. There's a reclamation of, of you know, what was lost is found. But we still have the loss of a young person uh, that will never be reclaimed. And the forgiveness for that, well, maybe that has happened, but it will never be forgotten. Right. And so it's in that way, I think it's, I'm, I'm very fond of the play. Uh, and and it's, for, it's for those reasons that it deals with these, um, it deals with redemption and, and forgiveness, but yet it, it holds us accountable as human beings for what we say and what we do. And I, and I, I bring that to every role. I bring that to every program I do. I try to instill that in, in these young people that first of all, you have more, they have more power than they think. So I, I do my best to help them develop their and articulate their true voices to become advocates on behalf of those who don't have a voice on behalf of those who are oppressed on behalf of those who are different from them and, and don't feel like they have options. But also with that power comes a great responsibility. And I think that's the difference today, that we're demanding of our young people that they take responsibility to be response-able, right? To be able to respond in a, an effective, loving, compassionate way, not only to their colleagues and classmates, to their faculty, to, to, but to their community members, to other people in the world. And so they also to, to develop a relationship with whatever they consider their higher power, to God, to something bigger than them and greater than themselves, because that demands a responsibility and accountability that is uh, uh, irrefutable, undeniable. And I think if these young people you know, being being conscripted into these terrorist groups had a feeling of uh, option that they had other options available to them and a sense of responsibility to other people. Right. Then we wouldn't have the, the these uh, horrible. We wouldn't have war. I mean, war is just a lack of imagination. It's it comes from it comes from, you know feeling like you don't have other options. And so, yeah, I try to create options and I try to create and instill a sense of responsibility. Look, I'm, I'm 
I'm practicing. I'm, I'm practicing what I preach, but as I preach, because I, when I was that age, I wasn't, didn't have a sense of, of any of this. I didn't have a sense of what my responsibility to my classmates were or to my, the other people in my community. I mean, you think about just for a minute, you and I having this conversation this morning, everything, everything, how interconnected we all are as people, not only in our own communities, you in New York um, or Connecticut, uh, me and here in the Vale Valley, not only how interconnected and interdependent we are with others in our community, but in our country, in the world, there's so much that had to happen in order for you to get to the studio today or wherever you're recording from. For me to wake up in the morning and to have my coffee and to sit down and meditate and then be able to connect on the internet and speak with you. There, we're dependent on so many other people for creating everything that works and everything that, that helps us exist, right? And so if we if we just think for a second in each of our days, have gratitude for that and realize, oh, what I'm doing and saying does have an impact. It has an effect on someone else. What, you know, the prayer, the meditation I'm engaged in has an impact. You know, it has indirect impact, but I, I, I still feel very strongly it has an impact. Anyway, well, I'm constructive yeah. energy you know it's it's uh it's so interesting talking to you elijah because uh you know we did come from such uh, uh you know our beginnings as actors as as artists were in this it was it feels like lifetimes ago yeah it does and i would say just talking to you today and and uh in the conversations we've had over the years it feels to me like this this pursuit this acting job while it has definitely had its disappointments and hardships and whatnot it's put you in particular on a very spiritual path it, it seems to me that these discoveries you've made and the the teaching that you're doing now and and the projects that you're involved in all came about because of this pursuit of acting is that true? Yes. Yes. And I, I didn't realize it until now um, that all of that work and all of that hardship, all of that suffering, look, it is not easy to be an artist in particular in this country. Hmm. I mean, we were set up at the Yale School of Drama. I'll never forget the mission statement, right? At the beginning of the, of the welcome book. We, we are creating actors that will change the landscape of the American theater. And I believed that. I believed that. And I, and I believed wholeheartedly that after three years of training there, I would go out into the world, into our country, and I would be one of those artists that would change the landscape of the American theater. And the reality of it is that theater in particular, has changed so dramatically. And now since the pandemic changed um, uh, to where it's unrecognizable and the future is indeterminate and uncertain. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately it's a very good thing, but it mm -hmm. cannot continue in the way it was. It's a very different landscape right. than, than what we 
you know, wh where we found it. Are um, you going but, to continue pursuing a career on stage? So right, right now, I feel like, and it, this has to do a lot with what I just came from doing, you know, time, time of Athens, which all also was just a part of my spiritual progress. It was amazing what, what, Lisa Peterson I was, directed, correct? Lisa Peterson directed it. That's why that's why I went there. Lisa and I have worked together many times and we're, we're uh, very like-minded. We have a, a deep artistic affinity. And she, you know, she asked me to come do that and anchor that play with that, an amazing company. The best company. And an, an, an incredible role too. Time and time yeah. and goes through a one of these journeys that's similar to, to yeah. Richard III and Hamlet and and Leontes, right? Very materialistic beginning to a to a realization of what really is important in life. Stripped yeah. of everything, just like Lear, right? Yep. Yep. There are elements of Lear in it. Yeah. I mean he and it also happened to be a role, as we talked about earlier, that presented itself to me and said, Oh, I said, oh, this role has something to teach me. Oh, I have something, something, something to contribute to this role. I I understand the journey he's on. Mm -hmm. And so it completely, there was complete alignment, complete synergy in terms of where Elijah was in his life and where Timon was during this time. And to be able to do that and share that with an audience was a great gift. But the nature of the American theater today is it does not, it is not a sustainable, you cannot sustain a living in the American theater, in the American right. region. You, Get, I want to talk about this because you've worked at all the greats, right? You, you, you told me, you described to me a year in which you went from job to job to job at all the top, like top regional theaters, the Guthrie and Berkeley Rep and the Goodman and all these other places. And go ahead and talk about, you know, were you able to make a living? I I owe a debt to the theater. It's given me not a living, but a life. Mm -hmm. What I'm doing with all of that life that has happened, that, ha that I've experienced and inhabited now is much different than what I had dreamed of when I first set out. It's been 28 years of not being able to make a living. The, the, the financially, financially, you've had a yeah. life, you've had an incredible rich life yes. as an artist and yet you can't pay your bills. Yes. So the, the pandemic brought that front and center. I was, uh, during the, the pandemic, literally a, a week before everything in the world shut down, I was at the Alley Theater in Houston, um, engaged and performing what I thought might be the pinnacle of my theatrical career. I was doing um, Camp David, which is a theatrical um, a theatricalization of a Lawrence Wright novel called 13 Days in September, um, about the Camp David Accords facilitated by Jimmy Carter between Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat of Egypt. So we were, Oscar Eustace directed it. We directed it at the public in New York. I was back and was able to connect with you and little, uh, little Elijah, who's now mm -hmm. big Elijah. Who plays Mamilius uh, in, in the Winter's Yes, who, play, who played Mamilius in The Winter's Tale. What a, 
gift and a joy that was. Um, he's a beautiful young young man. Uh, and I was able to reconnect with you when I came there to rehearse that. And I thought, I've arrived. It took me 28 years to get back to New York, to a place to work at a theater, the public theater, which I had always dreamt of working at, right? It was mm -hmm. up there. I mean, it was the top. It was the top for me. And so to be able to, for, to 28 years later, come back, rehearse a show at the public with uh, Oscar Eustace and an amazing cast, and then premiere this play, playing Anwar Sadat, who's an Egyptian, and as an Egyptian, I'm, I'm, you know, it was it was a huge challenge, but a great gift. Again, a role completely, you know, much too young, not exactly the, you know, he was Sudanese Egyptian. So, I mean, not exactly the, the exact ethnic fit, but I understood, I understood that character and I, it was the pinnacle. I, we got to premiere it at the Alley Theater in Houston, mm -hmm. uh, which, which is where mm -hmm. I did The Winter's Tale the year before. And I realized, and then the pandemic hit and everything shut down and we, I had no way to make money. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, 90% of staff, staff and acting uh, companies across the country in every theater were released with right. nothing to, to no safety net. Um, I will say that Rob Melrose at the Alley Theater was the only one in the country who kept his his um, acting company employed all year. Oh, I, I want to add that Brenda DeVita at American Players Theater did oh, as well. She did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's so, awesome. so kudos to both of them because that it was rare. Yeah. But mo most the rest of us were left in the breeze to fend for ourselves. And so I realized then that I needed to do something else um, because it wasn't, it just wasn't a sustainable way to make a living. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm doing, wearing many different hats now and doing, but I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful actually to, 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 that time and, and to those big changes, change is fearful, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it set me on a, a course that I'm on now. And it, I'm not going to say I'm never going to do theater again, but I, I'm much more interested now in doing the, using theater right. as, as an educational tool and becoming an instrument of uh, change using using uh, everything that I've gained from theater. Do you predict that that is how theater is going to survive? Is that sort of direct teaching tool no longer going for these sort of cor corporate funded uh, backed, I guess you could say, yes. um, regional theaters that, that basically kind of, you know, the criticism of them is that they take the what worked in New York and they just basically do it there in yeah. Cleveland or in yeah. wherever. Yeah. And when Guthrie set out to create the American regional theater, right? Tyrone Guthrie, yeah. Tyrone Guthrie. When he set out to do that, that ideal was a, a wondrous one. It was a beautiful thing to make theater in New York accessible to the people in the regions, right? 
-hmm. However, the stuff being in New York now is not what it was back then. What we, what the, the the American theater, New York included, requ is uh, required to do now if it's going to survive, is to tell new stories that are happening today that have happened to to people since the pandemic. I'm not saying necessarily that that doesn't have to be the timeline, but that stories that are revolutionary, stories that are are vital to us today. That doesn't mean that exploring old chestnuts once in a while isn't isn't necessary or um, fulfilling or important. It is. But the days of programming to keep, you know, patrons in seats in these huge institutions that are much too expensive to keep to keep operating. Right. Those days are over. That's why you're seeing the collapse of these huge institutions and organizations they have to redefine what it is they want their missions their mission statements their missions in terms of programming in terms of what is vital in terms of what is necessary for us today and important for us today and include new voices right. include the voices that are you know emerging or challenging uh, interpretations of the classics which is what yes, we're trying yeah, to yeah. do here with yeah. the play on podcast yeah Right, taking yeah. things and, and saying, how, how is this relevant today? Is it worth listening to today? You yes. know, is this a story that needs to be told today? That's what yes. I'm always asking myself when we do these. I love that you're doing that with a play on podcast series, that the, the, these reimaginings of these classic plays, because I feel like that's part of what I'm talking about. It's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, doing another Shakespeare production in pumpkin pants and, you know, for, for an audience that is, bless their hearts, that, ha, you know, has seen those shows done numerous times with no new take, with no new uh, uh, interpretation, it's important for us to interpret, interpret those classics. And, I'm, and so I'm, I, my hat's off to you for doing that and supporting that, because I think that is a part of what I'm saying. It's a revolutionary, it's a departure from doing things the same old way for one particular audience, uh, you know, and, and doing it straightforward. If Shakespeare was alive today, he would be interpreting his own work. He right. would, he would, he would be writing plays for our time, addressing what is, what our audiences are dealing with, what they need. Right. right. It's not, it's not about, it's no longer about, it, it's no longer about dictating, you know, uh, and presenting something for entertainment. I don't believe in that really, honestly. I, I believe that all theater at its best is educational, impactful. Um, you learn something new, not only about the world, but about yourself. And so theater has to be re-envisioned, redirected and redistributed in that way if it's gonna survive. Well, I will say, and I'm I'm also going to just put a little asterisk here in what you in your response to my response, which is that that these podcasts, me me doing this, wouldn't have happened without the pandemic, right? It, it was yep. me reacting to that 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 cliff that we all faced when yep. there was no more work. Uh, you know, I had a teaching job I lost. I I yep. was you know uh, I had things lined up as an actor that evaporated my wife as well and there we are with two kids and and boom how do we make a living 
you know, I went pivoted back to uh, audio, which is something that I had done, you know, throughout my regional theater career as an actor. Uh, and, and here we are today. But I'm, speaking of audio, I know we have to wrap up. I, we could, You and I could talk forever, but I'm curious yes, to could. know, the, uh, d- have you had a chance to listen? Did you listen to uh, the Winter's Tale podcast series? Oh, yeah. And what yeah. was your, so you had done the stage version. What was it like hearing it? Did it illuminate the text for you in a different way? Were there revelations that you had that, that were new to you? Uh, well, just my approach was was so new, and I love working in that intimate, personal way. You're allowed to do, you know, it, it's the same with working in TV and film. You know, you can do things in those mediums that you can't do on stage. Um, and so just working that close with um, a microphone mm-hmm. where I can be able to make very subtle shifts between when I'm thinking, just thinking out loud. Right. And, you know, and I can do that with my voice. I, I much prefer working working that way. And so, I mean, the production qualities, the sound, all of that was, you know, exemplary. I mean, just really exceptional. Hats off to Tracy Young, the director, and Lindsay Jones, the sound designer. Yes. Hats off to both of them. Uh, an amazing team that was assembled. And I think, and the cast, and... Uh, and also you for your, you know, overseeing the whole project. You gave some great direction on that, on that, um, during that program um, throughout, because you know this business, but and actually much better than I do. My inclination has always been pull back, pull back, pull back. Like I, th- I don't know if the theatrical choice is going to read, yeah, in the audio space. And you made a lot in mixed in with some really intimate, subtle choices. You also were very theatrical. And that your performance was the first time that I went, oh, my God. So a, th- a, a, a theatrical choice can work because you made it work. The yeah. the grandness of the emotion of Leontes that you played with actually translated into this medium, which was yeah. revelatory for me. Well, that's good to know. I, I appreciate that. I, I mean, th- that play is what he that, that character in particular, what he's going through is Greek in nature. Yeah. I mean, he's I mean, he's. It's dealing with life and death literally in moment to moment i mean not uncharacteristic of a lot of shakespeare's major protagonists but it it felt very greek and felt very like those moments demanded it so um that was tricky and challenging for me and i but i i really liked playing with modulating you know the moments where what was demanded was more theatrical or uh, much more expressive. And and the fact that it held up was very encouraging. So, Well, Elijah, it's been such a great time talking with you. It was well worth the wait. I'm so glad we ended up doing it after all. Uh, it's been such yeah, an too. incredible conversation about friendship, about loss, about redemption, and about how... Uh, a life in the art can bring you closer to a relationship with God, which, you know, I'm not here to proselytize to anybody, but I will say that what what more could there be in life than to, you know, examine the essence of being? And you have done that in your career and you're doing it now. And I just want to applaud you selfishly. I hope you will continue to do things on the stage because I think you're just an incredible 
stage actor, but I really look forward to the work you're going to continue to do uh, in film and television. And I hope we'll get you back for more podcasts. I'd love that, Michael. And guess what, listeners? You can now contact me. I'm finally doing it. I have an email address. You can reach me, Michael, at ncpodcasts.com. I'm anxious to hear from you because I want to know what you think of these interviews. I want to know what you think of the Play On podcast. I want to know if you have ideas, thoughts, reactions. You can reach me, Michael, at ncpodcasts.com. Please get in touch. Let me know what's on your mind. And if we can incorporate it into any of our bonus content series or anything we're doing in Next Chapter Podcast, we will. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcast.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com where you can find other Play On podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts like The 500, Indecent with Kiki Anderson, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and my producer Pete Musto. Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows because that really makes a difference. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts.